The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Uh, two things happened this week as I was preparing this sermon and uh, preparing to start this new series on the fruit of the Spirit. I went to, to uh, our school's commencement on Wednesday evening. Wonderful affair. Really uh, was inspired by, it, by all of it except for the address which was delivered by Chaplain Canoa Valenti and uh, he spoke on the fruit of the Spirit. Stole my thunder. <laughs> Did the entire series in one short talk. It's going to take me nine weeks, which I think is the difference between relative youth and uh, otherwise. <laughs> then the second thing that happened, happened on Monday morning. I was out for my walk, and I, I was listening to James Michener's Hawaii, which I understand from all of you is the, the authoritative history. Not. <laughs> I'm going to be studying some other histories as well, but I wanted to, to review this. I had read the book many, many years ago, and it was kind of fun to, to uh, go over it. Again, I was so impressed in one section, and it was the section on Malachi and the leper colony. And what so impressed me was the focusing in on, on, on a Chinese family and the decision of the wife to go to the leper colony with her husband. He had the leprosy, she didn't. But she went, she went knowing what lay ahead. I understand that 48% of the people who were transported to the leper colony died in the first five years, 48%. She faced a dire future in what was adequately described, I think, as a hell on earth. She went out of love and was revered for what she did. I understand there's a term, uh, I, I hope I'm saying it right, kakua, for um, people who give themselves up in love the way she did. I was, I was touched by it, and I was thinking that, that she was demonstrating the kind of love that Paul talks about here in Galatians um, 5 when he's listing the fruit of the Spirit and starts with love. He says that this kind of love, this is not about feelings, not about romantic passion or sexual attraction. It's about commitment. A commitment that will not abandon the loved one no matter what. Now in the, in the popular imagination, to speak of a spirit-filled church or the fruit of the spirit conjures up speaking in tongues or performing healings or some other kind of spectacle. I'm a little more skeptical I think more in tune with what Paul is writing in this passage because he doesn't focus on the razzle-dazzle but on character, on, on attitude. And so the question can rightly be asked, how, how is life in the spirit expressed in the individual Christian, in the individual church, like this church? And it's, it's particularly relevant for us right now. We're, we're gearing up to call a new pastor to lead Kaimaki Christian Church. And uh, the people who are on the committee that will be looking at the candidate, they'll be asking all kinds of questions, 
making sure that the fit is right, making sure that the person who comes is qualified. What we tend to forget is that any prospective pastor who looks at us is going to be checking us out as well. And what is he going to see when he checks us out? What do we have to offer an incoming pastor? Well, if I were that person being examined, and i got to tell you, by the way, if I were 40 or 50 years younger, I might apply myself. What a, what a wonderful congregation. But i tell you what I'd be looking for and what I have seen since I've been here. I would be looking for evidence of the fruit of the Spirit as, as listed for us in Galatians 5. I would be looking primarily, initially, at how you love one another. Now, there's an analogy that we can draw between married love, I think, and the kind of committed love that Christians exhibit to one another in the life of the church. So I want to take us to Ephesians chapter 5. I use this scripture in just about every wedding that I perform. And uh, it always makes people a little bit uncomfortable. Because the standard for love that is written here in the, in the scripture is very high. I like to read this first part. I read this at home to my wife from time to time. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That's scriptural. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Isn't that a marvelous passage? (laughs) So, wives, the word to you is submit. Now, unfortunately, my wife also reads the Bible. And she knows this next section. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, we'll pass quickly over that passage. (laughs) Now, the governing verse over all of this is the 21st verse. And it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You love Christ. You worship the Lord. Love your spouse. It's so clear. Submit to your spouse. Now, both, both sets of my grandparents lived this. My father's parents were married 50 years. My mother's parents over 60. And then my family forgot it. Joy and I are the only members of my family that haven't been divorced. And that's just because she missed her opportunity. (laughs) In fact, my, my parents were married 19 years and divorced. My sister was married 19 years and divorced. When Joy and I hit our 20th year, we went away for a little getaway. And when we came home, our kids had put a big banner across the carport. Hooray, you made it. Happy 20th. (laughs) Well, it felt pretty good in my family to be able to go that long. So what does it mean for us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Practically speaking, how do we love with the love of the Lord? How does a spirit-filled church love I want to share some suggestions I picked up 
from Scripture, from observing successful marriages, from observing successful churches. I hope they'll be helpful. Five, five suggestions. The first one, in order for the Spirit to produce the fruit of love in us, we learn how to forget. We learn how to forget. I'm saying that exactly the way I mean to be saying it because we have to learn how to forget. It doesn't come natural for us. Well, we, we love to recall and recall and recall, and we like to tell stories on one another. We have a family tradition. Uh, we get together every year for an annual vacation, and the whole family comes together, and every evening we spend some time around a campfire telling stories and insulting one another. It's a, and mostly we insult me, but I'm trying to overcome that. You know how it goes, right? Remember back when, when you did, or when you, and sometimes it's negative. I, I, I remember what you said, and I, in fact, I'm not ever going to forget it. Here's the problem with that. Some people, they say, oh, I can forgive, but I just can't forget. No, it doesn't work that way. If you forgive, you forget. One of my family's favorite stories, and I mean, it shows you there's a streak of cruelty that runs through our family. We were out at our grandkids one day. Now, it's our granddaughter's fault because she's such a good housekeeper. And they had a patio door. They had a swimming pool. We went out to go swimming, actually. And the patio door was so clear, so clean, all glass. I went into the bathroom, changed into my swimming trunks, took my glasses off because I was going to go swimming, walked through the living room, walked through the patio door, which was closed at the time. <laughs> I stood there, glass everywhere. I, I, you know, I was, I was scratched. I was bleeding. I could have died. My wife, who's here, loving wife, she took one look at me and she said, I'll go home and get the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> now, fortunately, she's sitting there and I'm talking here and you don't want to hear her side. It's not nearly as interesting as my side. <laughs> anyway. We have those stories and then we have other stories of times when we had troubles or were trouble. Those stories we forget. Remember when Peter went up to Jesus? He asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up, up to seven times? Jesus answered, I, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Isn't that interesting? I used to think that, that meant, you know, you keep forgiving a person again and again and again for this, this uh, offense or that offense, but it could mean you forgive that same offense every time you think about it. And some offenses hurt so deeply that you have to reject them every time the memory comes up. 77 times. If you're going to love with the love of the Lord, you learn how to forget. And if you're going to love with the love of the Lord, you become each other's cheerleaders. I, it might have been easier in our day, probably was easier in our day in, in, in marriage, because we had assigned roles. When we got married, we just knew what the man's job was, what the woman's job was. <laughs> we spent a year and a half motorhoming when I retired the second time, and, and it was wonderful. We, we went around America. We divided up the jobs in our traditional roles. There were pink jobs and blue jobs. Isn't that clever? 
She got the pink jobs, all the stuff inside. I got the, the blue jobs, all the stuff outside, which meant, of course, I got to do the sewer disposal stuff, the black water and the gray water. And on more than one occasion, it didn't work just really well. And it was a little messy. And I was grumbling about it, and Joy was feeling so sorry for me because I got my hands dirty. And then she stopped, and she said, wait a minute. I did diapers for six years. <laughs> I had to quit griping about the gray water and the black water. We have these, we have these assigned jobs. And uh, I'm not sure that young people today have it any better than we did. We knew what we were to do, and we did it. And now there's a kind of a, uh, often a power struggle on, over who does what job, why, and, and when. But when we were first married... Uh, we were quite young. We were too young. Um, in, in the eyes of all mature people. But marrying as we did, as young as we did, meant that we had to grow together. We had to grow up together. We had to help each other grow up. We were young. We were immature. We were not fully developed. In, in, in some ways, by the way, we're still not fully mature, not fully developed. So we need to encourage one another, to assist one another, to cheer each other on, which is what we do in the church. When we talk about our, the diversity of our spiritual gifts, we're not all alike, and we don't want to be all alike, but we do want to help one another to become the best person God intended for us to become, and we're not going to do that without somebody cheering for us, being there for us, helping us. I've often wondered what I would have become without the partnership and the cheerleading of my wife, of the people that I served in the church, of my friends. So I try to do the same for them. If you're going to love with the love of the Lord, you become each other's cheerleaders. And, and we learn that we are never adjusted, always adjusting. In just uh, a little over a week, Joy and I will celebrate our 58th wedding anniversary. <laughs> thank you. On behalf of my whole family, I thank you for that. <laughs> we don't have it. We don't have it down pat. We, Joy keeps changing on me. I, for years, I, uh, I kept a picture of her the girl I met and, and married on my desk at home. Desk was here, the picture was here. I could look out from my little study into the kitchen and, and there was Joy. She didn't look a lot like that picture. She changed on me. <laughs> I, on the other hand, <clears throat> I bring this up because I was touched. I, I'm, I'm using Pastor Ron's office now and on his desk I saw picture of the, under glass, picture of the family, and at the top of it, a little cutout of Dee, of Dee as she was when she was young. I know why that picture is there. Same reason I kept Joy's on my desk for so long. But interesting, Ron and I both have experienced the same phenomenon, I know. Uh, we married one woman, and then she became a mother, kind of a different woman. And then she became a grandmother, yet a different kind of woman. 
and now in our case, a great-grandmother. Do you have any idea what people go through together over 58 years, how they change over 58 years? I cannot be to her the same person I was when we married. And she is not that to me. Some of you have been in this church a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, five decades. You've changed. If you hadn't changed, you wouldn't be this church. In fact, if you hadn't changed, the church would be dead. So we're always adjusting, and we never get it fixed. I think from time to time of that minister who did a lot of counseling, and he was so frustrated that he finally gave up and quit the ministry altogether, and he became a funeral director. And his friends asked him, why did you become a funeral director after all those years in the preaching? And he said, well, I used to do all this counseling. People would come in with their problems, and I would fix them, and I would send them out, and they'd go right back and go right back to their old way of living. But he said, in this business, when I fix them, they stay fixed. <laughs> Always adjusting if you're going to be alive. Are you always pleased with what you see? No, of course not. Another of our family stories that I get a little tired of, Joy came home one day. We were living in, in Payson, Arizona. She'd been to a dress shop. And she and the clerk started talking, as people do in dress shops, about their husband. And uh, Joy said, I don't know why she even brought this up. She said regarding how she looked. She said, I have to be careful. My husband, you see, is little. And the clerk said, oh, I understand. My husband also is little. But he looks like Frank Sinatra. And Joy said, well, my husband looks like Don Knotts. She kept me anyway. It's what we do. We keep each other anyway. We're always adjusting, always accepting, always wanting to stay alive in the relationship because if we get them fixed permanently, it dies. It's over. And that's true in marriage. It's true in your family, and it absolutely is true in the church. Well, if we're going to love with the love of the Lord, and this is a big one that I had to be taught, we become satisfied with 80%. I'd learned that sitting in church, front row, one Sunday. Don, Don Cox, our, our beloved associate minister, uh, was preaching that day, and, and uh, so I got to sit and listen to somebody else talk. And he was speaking on marriage, and one of the points that he made was, in his marriage, he had been 80% satisfied. And I said to myself, Don, Norma's here. <laughs> I've never forgotten that moment, because you know what? 80% is pretty good. 80% is terrific, in fact. Best baseball players I know can only do about 
80%. And you know, <laughs> you know why that hit me so hard? I'm kind of a perfectionist. I like 100%. But I began thinking about my marriage and what she has to put up with and what I put up with. And 80% is pretty good. Back uh, when Mary Tyler Moore had her old TV show, I was watching when Rhoda got married. And Rhoda and uh, the groom, I don't remember his name, standing before the preacher, promised that they would be true and faithful to each other as long as they both shall love. Obviously, that's not the New Testament kind of love. That, that's not the biblical kind of love. When Joy and I stood before her father, who married us, we promised to be true and faithful as long as we both shall live. Now, those were not easy words for me to say because I came from that family I just told you about. But I knew it, it was the right thing to say. And I don't know how some of you married people have experienced it, but I can tell you about us. It hasn't always been easy. I think it's fair to say we've always loved each other. It's also fair to say we haven't always liked each other. There have been those moments. I know it strikes you as a shock to learn that I might not have always been the perfect specimen you see now. <laughs> there were those moments that we were held together because we'd made a promise. We'd made a promise, and we made the promise before God. Now, I don't want to, I'm not trying to hang a guilt trip on anybody here. If you went through a tragedy, like the tragedies in my family, I have nothing but compassion for you, and no blame. I don't know your story. But I do know what the ideal is, and I do know that the ideal that we hold up in marriage is the same ideal we hold up in this thing called a church. We don't expect 100% out of anybody. It's a good thing because we don't get it. There was that movie a number of years ago called Grumpy Old Men. <laughs> I've known those old men everywhere I've gone. I've met them. And I can tell you what makes them grumpy. They want 100%. They haven't learned that 80% is pretty good. And so they try to do with their relationships, which, which you try to do with mathematic problems. You try, you strive for perfection. And if you don't get it, you become a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman. So, we're satisfied with 80%. And then the last one is, we keep our promises. We keep our promises. I think I want to put this all together and make it very personal. I've been talking about the church, <clears throat> been talking about marriage, been talking about the family. I've been talking about all of our relationships. And I've been doing this in light of the fact that we as a church are, are going to be calling a new leader one day, and we want to think through what we have to offer that leader. I'm wanting to suggest to you that we offer the fruit of the Spirit, and we start with love.
So, having promised in our marriages, in our families, in, in the church that we're going to stick together for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, we're going to love and to cherish, let's, let's get real personal. I want to read you the scripture, the other scripture that gets into most of the weddings I um, officiate at. You know this one, you could probably quote it back to me, but I, I want you to listen very carefully this time and see how you measure up. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just a lot of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Love is patient. This is the hard part. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Let's, let's read this hard part one more time, but you think, will you, about yourself, wherever it says love or its pronoun, or would you, would you just say, I? Read it for yourself. I'm patient. I'm kind. I don't envy. I don't boast. I'm not proud. I do not dishonor others. I'm not self-seeking. It's not all about me. I'm not easily angered. I don't keep a record of wrongs. I don't, I don't delight in evil. I rejoice when the truth is told and the truth is lived. I always protect. I always trust. I always hope. I always persevere. I don't give up. Because... Because the fruit of the Spirit is love.